0: Welcome to the Beef Brunch Educational Series podcast, bringing you information on cattle production and management in Louisiana and surrounding states. All right, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining this morning's Beef Brunch Educational Series. My name is Ashley Edwards, and I'm an assistant extension agent and coordinator of animal science programs for the LSU Ag Center. I'll be hosting today with the help of Vince Desitel, who is one of our beef cattle coordinators in the Central Region. Our speaker today is Dr. Christine Navarre. She's an extension veterinarian for the LSU Ag Center and will be discussing practical solutions for internal parasite control in cattle. A few housekeeping notes before we get started. First, I apologize if it's a little fuzzy on my end. Um, everything should be clear with Dr. Navarre when she starts speaking, but Wi-Fi here at the office is still a little spotty we will be muting all of your microphones and we ask that you please keep them muted throughout the webinar if you're joining us online via the team's app or link please enter your questions into the q a box at any time during the presentation if you are calling in you can text your questions to me my number is 512-818-5476 again if you are calling in you can text me questions throughout the webinar That number is 512-818-5476. In the interest of time, we will wait to answer questions until the end of the presentation. With that, Dr. Navar, I'd like to thank you for taking the time of joining us and joining us this morning. You should be able to unmute and start whenever you're ready.
1: Great, can you hear me?
0: Yes, ma'am, you're good to go.
1: Okay, so good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining. I know that these are tough times for a lot of people. Uh, Hurricane Laura uh, devastated um, many areas of our state. It's going to be a long recovery, but uh, we'll get there. Um, I want to also thank um, Ashley Lee, Jason and Vince uh, for putting this series together. It's really been great. So what we're going to talk about today are um, internal parasites in in beef cattle and actually uh, this is going to concentrate on cow calf herds. And then we're going to try to find practical solutions. Uh, unfortunately, things are uh, have gotten complicated and uh, not simple anymore. You know if you're listening and you're expecting to get some specific recommendations about what product to use, when or what group of cattle. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that. That's something you have to work out and, and hopefully you'll understand that um, as we go through. Uh, also, you know I am Coming from you know the the southern U.S., so um, a few things I talk about are going to be you know kind of region specific, but there's a lot in this presentation that really applies uh, no matter where you are in in the U.S. So the problem that we're dealing with is that in general cattle dewormers are not as well working as well as they were in the past. Now what we don't know is h- how bad it is on any individual operation, and, and we'll talk more um, through that in this presentation and this problem is really only going to get worse over time. As long as we continue to use these products and we will, uh, it is going to get worse, but we can slow it down and we, we need to think about doing that. Um, there are no new products in the pipeline at this time that I'm aware of and even if there's something that's still proprietary that one of the pharmaceutical companies is working on you know you're looking at five to ten sometimes 15 20 years before those products actually make it to market and so you know we're just we've got what we've got and we've got to be able to um, figure out how to keep uh, these things working and so we need a new way, way of dealing with with parasites. Again, we can't just do what we've always done and, you know, dewormed everybody on a on a schedule. Um, just doesn't work anymore. There needs to be some a little more thought uh, in that. And this is a, a super complicated subject and you know I've I've tried to boil it down as, as much as possible. And hopefully at the end of this you'll have a, a little bit better understanding of what we're dealing with and at least some guidelines on what to start thinking about. Um, doing uh, to deal with this, it's going to take some planning. It's going to take some diagnostics. Uh, you're going to need to get, you know, producers are going to need to get with their veterinarian to figure out what tests I need to run, when I need to run those. We don't have to do that every year. Once we get some basics, then um, then we can use that. Uh, but we don't know what's going on again on any individual operation, and so doing some tests is the way uh, we find that out. And if we can figure out. How to do this? Then it's going to make us more sustainable in the long run, and hopefully save us uh, some money and and prevent us from using products uh, that really aren't as effective as they used to be. So what we're doing is, is moving from a deworming program to a parasite control program, and our goal is to minimize short term economic losses and health problems. So parasites are still a problem and we still need to, to use dewormers, but we u- need to use them uh, smartly uh, so that we can be sustainable in the long run. So, before we go any further, we have to talk about the life cycle um, of the worms. So, for years and years, we've had highly effective, cost effective products, and we've just basically concentrated on the animal. Okay, we've got parasites in the animal, let's deworm them. Well, now we need to think about um, what's on the pasture a little bit more. We need to go back. And so, if you look at this cycle, That cow uh, has, and this might be a cow or a calf or a bull, uh, has parasites, adult parasites in their gut. And those males and females breed, and then the females are gonna lay eggs. And those eggs, you know, one female produces hundreds of eggs a day, depending on the species of worm. And so those eggs come out in the fecal pad and they, um, they hatch into larvae and then they change larval stages until they get to the L3 stage and then they crawl up. Um, on grass and you can see uh, this picture um, up in the, the right hand corner. Uh, that's one drop of dew, so you can see how many parasites can actually contaminate um, the pasture. Now, a couple of things we really need to keep uh, in mind. And so if you look uh, to the right the, the blue arrow, the time from egg to larva hatch is dependent on both temperature and moisture, and that's going to become important as we think about uh, how we're going to control um, parasites and what to do and what not to do. And then if you look there to the left. How long that infective larva lasts on the pasture is really temperature dependent. So once the eggs hatch and they crawl up, and sit there, if nothing comes along and grazes it and eats it and it just keeps sitting there, then in the heat of the summer, we're gonna those are gonna die off quicker than they will in the winter. So if we move cattle from a pasture, as long as we've had rain and those um, eggs can hatch out of the fecal pat and move up, if we take the cattle off the pasture, uh, and we leave that without cattle for a while, we can really clean up that, um, that pasture. In the wintertime, particularly here um, in the, um, the southeast where we have mild winters, that is when those infective larvae are just going to sit there for about as long as it takes for a cow to come along. So, leaving pastures uh, open in the wintertime doesn't really help us, especially in the, in the south. And that's flip flopped uh, when you look in the, in the north. So, what are the impacts of parasites in general? So, we've got study after study after study that show you know all kinds of impacts of these parasites. But what we have to remember is that that study is location dependent, uh, and so we're going to have to figure out what's exactly happening on on our individual ranches. But we know in general that for the most part. The, the economic impacts are from decreased weight gains uh, in young cattle, decreased reproductive efficiency, and decreased milk production. What's kind of um, you know under the water that we don't necessarily see, but is super important, uh, is the impacts of uh, on the immune system. So parasites uh, impair the immune system; they interfere with vaccine responses. So another reason we need to control them, and then while many cattle have uh, production impacts that you really can't see by looking at the cattle they look perfectly happy and healthy Uh, we do have uh, clinical um, disease and death at times Uh, young cattle uh, more likely but we can have that in in adults either when cattle come in and they have never been exposed to parasites and all of a sudden they get exposed to a high load are particularly when we have other diseases or stressors. So if we have liver flukes, if we have poor nutrition, and you combine that with um, some uh, internal parasites, then uh, we can have even, you know, we can have cows die, uh, even adult cows. So this is a great picture from a study done in Louisiana several years ago, Um, and you can see what the impacts um, from a production standpoint and growth in young cattle uh, are really because parasites depress the appetite. And so you can see that pasture uh, on the left has really been mowed down and then you can see that pasture on the right where you still have quite a bit of forage. You you can't tell by looking at these calves if you mix them up, you wouldn't be able to look at them and tell which ones um, had parasites and which ones didn't, uh, but you could definitely, if you did um, you know, weights uh, pre and post treatment, you would definitely see um, a weight difference, and that weight difference is because those calves um, eat less. So figuring out, so we've got all these studies across the US that kind of tell us in general what parasites do, but how do we know how many parasites we have and what are the impacts on each individual ranch? And again, that's going to be highly dependent on where you're located. Uh, the picture on the top is a, a ranch I visited um, between Kingsville and uh, Laredo. So South Texas, these cattle—they graze some during parts of the year, but for the most part, they're browsers. They're, uh, it's too hot for parasites to survive there very well and then those cattle are not always eating on the ground. And so a lot less um, parasite pressure, although they have other other pressures. And then the picture on the bottom is going to be more you know southeast up into you know even up north where we've got more high intensity um, grazing, we've got warmth, we've got wet um, parts of the year uh, and our parasite pressure is going to be higher. So the impacts on an individual ranch are going to depend on really three factors, um, and we're going to talk about each one of those. So pasture factors, cattle factors, and then the level of dewormer resistance that's on an individual ranch. And the hard part about this is it's unpredictable. So even with some diagnostics, we might figure out what's going on this year, but we have changes to management, weather, other diseases may come in, nutrition uh, that makes it tough to predict what's out there um, on pasture in uh, particular and and then what's in the animal. So we've got to do our best to keep track of those things. So we're going to talk about pasture factors first. So what impacts the parasite numbers on pasture? So really the weather is really important and so the the development um, of that infective larva. So it hatches out and migrates up on the plant so that it's now sitting there waiting on the cattle is very dependent on both temperature and moisture. And the hard part about this is that can range from days to months. That's impacted by where you are in the US, but it's also impacted by changes in weather on an individual operation. So a couple things to keep in mind, though, as we um, go through the year, uh, some things that we can either control or at least uh, know what to expect when we have certain. Parameters so we have to have rain rain to get those eggs to hatch and then the infective larva to migrate on the grass. We have to have some moisture. So when we're in a drought situation, what happens is. The, the cows are out on the pasture and they're continuing to lay eggs uh, or the, the parasites lay eggs and they're continuing to deposit those fecal pads in. and so the the eggs in those fecal pads just kind of build up, build up and build up and without any moisture, they just sit there in those fecal pads and then what happens when it does rain, all the parasites come out all at once and that can uh, present an overwhelming burden uh, to cattle, uh, particularly young cattle, um, but even older cattle. And and unfortunately, when we're in a drought situation, many times we're also in. You know, our cattle are um stress nutritionally. We're we're having trouble, you know, they don't have grass and we're having to supplement them and and maybe they're marginal on their nutrition. And so you add those two things together. So that's something that you need to talk to your veterinarian about if you're in a drought situation is to say, okay, what do we need to do when it does finally rain to get a handle on our parasite uh, situation? And then again, as we discussed, the larvae die off quicker in the summer um, if Cattle are off that pasture, and you can clean those pastures up. Now, um, that's not always necessary, but it's just something that, again, when you're working out your control programs, that you might be able to um, to take advantage of. Again, you have to have some rain to make them hatch in the first place, but then once they hatch, there's a limited um, amount of time that they can live uh, in the summer. So, other things that impact parasite numbers on the pasture: grazing management. So. Pasture type, quality, topography, drainage all influence how many parasites we have on the pasture. And while we can talk about this from an academic standpoint, there's really nothing that you can do from a practical standpoint to change some of these things. Um, and so, you know, you're not going to go and, you know, if, if somebody said, well, you're going to have less parasites with this grass species, unless that grass species you know or or that soil type is in your area. There's no really way to to get around that. Um, and then I get a lot of questions about rotational grazing. When, how often do I need to move cattle if I'm rotationally grazing uh, to not have parasites? Well, unfortunately, if the weather remained the same year in, year out, we might be able to predict that. But if you remember back to those slides, temperature and the weather changes and the time period can go from days to months depending on those factors and so it's very very difficult to predict what's happening on um, the pasture Um, i hear a lot about high intensity mob grazing uh, and that's you know high intensity grazing i mean in you know with long rest periods there's actually a a, a formalized definition of mob, mob grazing you have to be really careful because you know it, it can be detrimental so there are cases where parasite problems got worse from mob grazing and it, it really depends again the devil is in the details exactly what you're calling mob grazing and high intensity grazing so if, if cattle, if it's a contaminated pasture and cattle are grazing close to the ground, then you're going to have more parasite problems. Um, but if you have very long rest periods, again, particularly if you have rainfall, then you can um, maybe clean up some of those pastures again, particularly if that, that um, rest period is in the summer in, in the South. So the bottom line is you really need to manage pastures for grass health and cattle nutrition. What is a cost effective grazing program on my ranch? That's what you start with, and then we're going to monitor the parasites through some testing to determine how bad our parasite problems are in different situations and on different pastures. So what actually we've talked about pasture contamination. Um, What actually impacts the number of parasites in the animal and actually, you know, pasture contamination, how how many parasites are on that pasture is, is where we're going to start, but then whether or not those parasites impact those animals depend on a lot of cattle factors. So, Calves are much more susceptible up until about two years of age, um, although that's, that's breed dependent, which we'll talk about. Uh, bulls are more susceptible. Uh, Brahmin cattle are resistant to more resistant to external parasites but not necessarily internal parasites uh, and that's particularly true of ostratagia uh, there's a there's some preliminary data out there that shows that Brahmin cattle um, because they developed in parts of the world that were extremely hot and ostratagia which is one of our really bad parasites doesn't live in those very hot areas that Brahmin cattle don't uh, know how to mount an immune response, and it takes them longer to amount an immune response. Now, what we don't know is whether or not um, Brahman crosses. When you add some hybrid vigor, we don't know what that does to the parasite susceptibility. Um, I personally believe that hybrid vigor would be a good thing, and it would help those cattle um, fight off those parasites. Other stressors are critical. So, p- cattle, mini cattle. Particularly, adult cattle can get along with some parasites, but when you add other stressors to those parasites, then you start to have um, problems and it can be um, deadly. Uh, so liver flukes in, in areas that have liver flukes. It's important to know that and to, to uh, manage those and then adequate nutrition is also very important. Um, the amount and quality of forage. Uh, trace minerals supplementation is going to be very important. Um, particularly, what we see most often is we see cattle, uh, you know, especially heavy pregnant cattle or lactating cattle that have the, that those stresses. Uh, you add some cold weather, you add some mud, you add some poor nutrition. Maybe they're on some poor quality round bales of hay. They're not getting supplemented, um, and then you add on parasites, um, and that can actually be be a deadly situation. A previous exposure, so cattle have to be exposed to some small level of parasites to develop um, immunity. And replacement cattle, especially from western states where it's drier, particularly further north where you don't have the pressures and they've never been exposed. Then, if we, you know, say we buy a group of bulls or a group of heifers and we bring them down. They've never seen those parasites. So, even they're, though they're older, they're still very susceptible. We also have to be very careful. Again, Ostrichaja does not live where it's very hot. So, the very southern tip of Texas and Florida, those cattle may not have been exposed to Ostrichaja, although there's some evidence that, that might be changing a little bit. But, you know, you've got to, there's been cases where people have bought cattle from those areas and brought them north. And even though they may be two or three years old, um, they start dying of ostratagia because they have not had a chance to mount an immune response and they get exposed to high levels. And then we know that some cattle are more genetically susceptible and some cattle are more genetically resistant. And it would be really nice to be able to uh, have a, a really um, effective, cost effective tool to pick those cattle out. We don't necessarily have that, but we'll talk about you know, selecting cattle over time that don't need our help um, with dewormers. And then finally, we need to look at the level of dewormer resistance. How well when we use these dewormers are we really impacting the level of parasites um, in those animals like we um, we have in the past? So what exactly is anthelminic resistance? So it's basically just the dewormers are not working very well. It doesn't mean that they it's not an all or nothing thing. So for the most part when dewormers were first um, released, they are about 99% effective. Well, now some of them are 80 and 90% effective, so it's not zero. But it's not way up there, and then unfortunately, when it gets a little, you know, towards the 50s and 60s, and in that area, that's when we even can start to see clinical signs. But even um, at those higher levels, with resistance, uh, you're going to see um, probably a reduction in your um, efficacy from a, you know, preventing some of the economic impacts of these parasites. And so the the resistant worms, I call them the bad worms they have genes in their gene pool that tell you know that allow them to survive the treatment so they have genes that say you know sorry ivermectin or sorry finbendazole or whatever product you know you can't work um, against me. And then. Refugia is a term that you've probably run across if you've read about parasites lately, and you know some of the the um, magazines out there. So these are what I call the good worms. They are still susceptible, so they don't have the genes to confer. Um, resistance. The dewormers still work effectively against them, and what we need is to keep some of these around. Now we can't keep too many because then we're right back to square one, but if we keep enough good worms around to breed with the bad worms, we actually dilute the resistant worms um, in the population. Now, one thing we have to remember going back to that picture I showed or that diagram I showed at the very beginning. Parasites are on pasture and in the animal and Resistant parasites are in the animal and on pasture, and so is refugia. So we have to think about refugia um, from both a pasture and an animal um, standpoint. And and having a refugia program is really a key component of slowing drug resistance. So let's talk about that with some diagrams to to make it a little bit more clear. So if you look on the left, you have the the parents and let's say this is the 1980s and we just got ivermectin and ivermectin was 99.9% effective against a particular worm species when it was released. So at the top, you've got all of those susceptible parasites. 99% of the worms in the animals are susceptible. That's our refugia. Then at the bottom, remember it was only 99.9% effective, so we had that 0.1% that was already resistant when this product was first uh, released. And so what we've done over years is we've treated everybody and we've eliminated all of those susceptible parasites or refugia so that the next generation is all resistant worms and then resistant males breed to resistant females and then that female cranks out, you know, hundreds of eggs per day of resistant worms. So what we're going to do is try not to treat everybody. So this is another way of looking at that. So if you look at the little purplish blue circles, those are the good worms. Those are the refugia. And then in any population, we're going to have some of the red striped worms which are the Resistant worms. And again, um, you know, different herds are going to have different levels of or different ratios of those um, parasites. So when we, if you look down on the left, if we treat the entire herd and we don't preserve any refugia, then we've eliminated all of the good ones, and all we have left are those red striped ones. Which when they breed, we've we've basically um, now we've got a resistant population, and our our dewormers are not going to work very well. But if we go back to the top and we've got that mix, and then we only treat fifty percent of the herd, uh, and we're going to talk about you know. Selective non treatment. um, We preserve some of those refugia and again, these are just diagrams, so the numbers are not exact, but we now have a mixture of good worms and bad worms and when those get together and breed, we have less um, resistance. It doesn't stop it because the only way to really stop this is to not use the dewormers at all. But if we can slow it down, that's really um, our goal. And remember that if you go back to the left, when I treat everybody, if I turn them out onto a clean pasture, then now my pasture is completely contaminated with nothing but um, resistant parasites. And in some situations, that's okay um, if it's a non-permanent pasture. But when we do this in permanent pastures, that's when we really get into trouble. So before we can determine what we need to do, we have to gather some information. And for years and years, you know, we've done fecals for research projects, but we've basically had highly effective products uh, that worked very well, and there was just really no reason to do a lot of these diagnostics. But unfortunately, we're not there anymore. And so, n- knowledge is power. We have to know what we're we're dealing with. So the first thing to know is, well, what is my parasite burden? You know, and again, that's really gonna depend on so many of the factors that we talked about before. Your parasite burden is dependent on what you've used in the past, how often, your grazing management, the weather on your particular operation, which we know, you know, one farm can get rain today and the next one's still in a drought. So there's just very um, hard to predict, and so the only way to to understand what's going on in a particular group of cattle at a particular time is just to do fecal egg counts. So we're going to take some eggs and we're going to do a quantitative fecal egg count. Which means we're going to get an eggs per gram and you know unfortunately those counts don't really tell us necessarily when to treat because there really is no magic treatment threshold and and whether or not cattle respond to treatment has to do not only with how many parasites they have, but what is the effect of those parasites on those animals? So if animals are highly susceptible to parasites, then deworming, you may get more pounds of gain or more response from reproduction than you would in cattle that are, are more resistant on their own. So, you know, we really don't have that magic treatment threshold, but what we can do um, if you do an entire group, you can use that to make selective treatment decisions. So let's say we do fecals on an entire group, um, then we can treat the ones with the high accounts and not the others. Um, A little bit impractical, but in some cases that might be necessary. And then again, that also gives you data. You don't necessarily have to do that every year and then we're going to use on form trials at times. To determine well, so I've got calves and they've got 200 eggs per gram. Do I need to treat them or not? And what is the benefit of treating those calves? What am I getting from the cost of that dewormer? Um, What are the gains I'm getting uh, from those calves? And so sometimes you may need to do some trials where you weigh the calves, treat them, um, and you only treat a portion of those calves, and then you compare the weight gains on the treated and the untreated. Again, something that might uh, help you. It's labor intensive to begin with, but it gives you a lot of information to determine what you need to do. So fecal egg counts are really for monitoring patterns over time with changes in weather, management stressors, and in multiple age groups. So you know, if you're having a hard winter, you've been fine, and all of a sudden you've got a hard winter, and you're getting a little bit worried about these cattle, do some egg counts. You know what? How did that compare to a less stressful winter? Did those egg counts go up? Well, then maybe I need to look at treating some cattle. You know, no, the cattle are handling this situation just fine. Then I don't need to um, to treat. And then we need to know how well the dewormers are working on individual operations. And that requires a fecal egg count reduction test. And basically, what you do there is you're gonna take some fecal samples, you don't have to take it from everybody. Um, but you need to ha- make sure you're doing this correctly and your veterinarian can help you with that. Uh, you take some fecals, deworm the cattle, and then about two weeks later you got to take fecals from the same cattle, but then we're going to compare the counts. And so what we'd like to see is let's say we do fecals and we have 100 eggs per gram and then we give a dewormer and it goes to you know 99 or 100 uh, less. So we only have zero or one eggs per gram. That would be highly effective. Well, let's say we still have you know twenty eggs per gram compared to one hundred. That's you know eighty percent efficacy. That tells us we've got some resistance. It tells us, yeah, that dewormer is somewhat effective but not highly effective anymore. So once we know that and we know what products um work at what level, Then we have to think about three different refugia based strategies and this is definitely just um, in general. So targeted treatment really tells us. When to treat or more importantly, actually when not to treat. So what we don't want to do is treat all of the animals when there's no refugia on the pastures because then that eliminates refugia in both sources. We can get away with not having refugia on the pasture if we don't treat all the animals, or we treat all the animals and we put them on a contaminated pasture, but we can't do um, both at the same time. And the big thing to avoid in the south, this is different in the north, is um, avoiding treatment of everybody in the summer when there's no ostratagia refugia on the pasture. We actually used to actually recommend this because in the short term, it really helps eliminate a lot of the parasites. But if you think about what we're doing to refugia, we're taking all of the refugia out of the animals and there's no refugia on the pastures, so all we're going to have left to breed each other um, and develop are resistant parasites and then targeted selective treatment and selective non treatment are, are very similar, but that tells us who to treat and who not to treat. So selective treatment is really. What animals do I need? Groups of animals, so particularly based on age and maybe based on breed. Uh, who do I need to treat, and who can I get away with maybe not treating, except in in bad times? So, for instance, we're going to treat calves, young females, and bulls, but maybe we're not going to treat um, adult cows once they get to a certain age. And then selective non treatment is how do we? Um, if we want to deworm a majority of a group that is susceptible. So let's say we've decided in our targeted selective treatment. that we're we're going to treat calves. We still don't want to treat. the entire group, and so we're going to leave a percent. of that group untreated Example, For example, we're going to treat. 90% of a group of calves or replacement heifers that. might be 70% and that percentage is really based on. Um, your tests, your fecal egg count reductions that we talked about, and again, uh, you get those numbers, and then there are really smart parasitologists who have charts that can help us determine what that percentage needs to be.
0: So, keeping refugia,
1: the targeted selective treatment and selective non-treatment. Here's some examples, and again, these are just examples because. If, if you do this and you don't pay attention to the rest of what's going on on the ranch from a health standpoint and a management standpoint, you can get yourself in, into trouble. So this is where your veterinarian really comes into to play to help with this. But let's say we're not going to deworm cattle once they've weaned their first calf. We know that younger cattle are more susceptible. First calf heifers have a lot of pressure on them, and um, so once they've weaned their first calf, they're not going to get dewormed, so then they serve those animals, those older cows, then serve as a source um, of refugia. Now, again, the age cutoff is dependent on breed and other stressors. We said Brahmin cattle are probably um, take longer to develop immunity to some of our worst parasites, and so maybe I let a Brahma cow wean her second calf before I decide not to deworm uh, her. But again, that's a that's. Getting into the details that can be made um, on an individual operation. So, then let's say we've got some replacement heifers and we want to treat most of them because they're still susceptible, but we still need a refugia based program. And so, let's say, you know, 10 to 30 and even up to 50%, we're not going to treat. So again, the percentage is going to be based on those dewormer resistance from our fecal egg count reduction, those diagnostics. So let's say our diagnostics say you know when you we use the dewormers in combination, which we'll talk about next, you know, we're still 99% effective. Well, in that case, only leaving 10% untreated is going to be fine, so you can treat 90% of them. But then who do we select to not get dewormed? And so there's a couple of practical ways to do that. So that can be based on weight. So there's some really good um, research studies out there that show that if you pick the heaviest animals and you know the top 10% heaviest animals and you don't deworm them, you're not really giving up because when we look at deworming an entire group and we look at the weight gain from deworming, there's an average in those um, animals. Some are going to benefit much more than others. Let's say we've got you know a really uniform set of heifers. So, then how do I pick? Well, what a lot of people are doing is just as you're running cattle through the chute, every 10th animal, for instance, um, doesn't get treated. Unless, you know, one comes through and maybe she, you know, looks a little poor hair coat, maybe she's lagging behind a little bit. But for the most part, we just don't treat every 10th animal. Again, there are exceptions to this. So, when we have liver flukes, And we're having to deworm liver flukes are deadly even for adult cattle have a lot of economic impacts. Um, We might have to treat adult cows, so I've just told you, you know, let's try not to treat adult cattle. Well, if we have liver flukes, we might have to. And again, this is where your veterinarian can help you make those decisions. We, We still need to leave. We still don't want to treat everybody. We still have to think about a refugia program because the products that we have don't just get flukes they also impact the stomach worms which we've been um, talking about so we still need to do that based on a refugia program Um, and then again times of nutritional or other stress we really have to there may be years it's not every year on every operation there may be years where we do need to treat those adult cows um, that normally wouldn't need treating maybe we've had a drought and now all of a sudden it started to rain and we have an overwhelming um, you know, exposure, and even adult cows are starting to show um, some problems. Again, that's where your surveillance can really help. So when we do, now we've we've kind of decided, you know, how many we're going to treat, who we're going to treat, and when. So how do we use the products properly? So when we've decided who we're going to treat, we are always going to use. Now the recommendations are combinations. You're not going to use either Ivermectin or Benzimit, you know, Safeguard, for instance, or Valbazin. You're going to have to double up um, classes and what that does is it really knocks things back, but we have to do that with a refugia program because if we use double class products without a refugia program, then we're just breeding superworms, which is not what we want um, to do so. The classes, um, and this is not, you know, all inclusive, but the ivermectin or the macrocyclic lactone class is ivermectin, dectomax, sidectin, epranex. There's, there's others in that group. Um, benzimidazoles are your in your safeguard, your synanthic, and then um, your levamisole, tramisole, rheumatel are a, are a third. We're going to give, pick two classes, and then we're going to give them at the same time. We're not going to mix them together most of the time if you pick a benzimidazole that's going to be oral and you pick an ivermectin class that's usually injectable or, or pour on. We're going to use pour on sparingly. We we think that using pour ons has, has helped um, spread resistance or or um, increase the resistance and so I'm only going to use a pour on if there's another reason. So let's say I've decided to deworm and it's um, you know springtime and the horn flies are already Bad and I want to delay putting ear tags in, I might use a porin, but otherwise I'm sticking to injectables and um, those that go by mouth. And then we need to make sure we dose animals properly. We need to dose cows for the heaviest cow and, and lots of studies have shown that even um, pretty experienced people usually underestimate weight, particularly on adult cows. So if she you think she weighs 1300 dose her for 1400. If you're not weighing them, um, it's really better to dose calves on actual weight, or again, the heaviest. Um, most of these products are very, very um, safe, with a with a few exceptions. We're going to avoid deworming in the feeder mineral. That you just cannot control the dose. You can't control the intake, um, and when you underdose, that is going to contribute to um, the the resistance. And then we need to make sure we're storing products properly. Um, and not outside. Um, our heat, so even if a product is in date, um, it might not be. Um, it might not be good anymore if we stored it um, outside. So to finish up, other things to think about is control in general. Anything we can do to increase overall herd immunity helps us with um, parasites too. Proper nutrition, decreasing other stressors and diseases. We can use cows as vacuum cleaners. So if we've got a, a pasture that's you know had um heifers on it for instance then let's you know um, put some adult dry cows um, on that move the heifer pasture around things like that you know young cattle have more pasture contribute to more pasture um, contamination try not to buy resistant worms I'm calling poor doers you know that animal that's just not keeping up um we really need to figure out cattle that um don't need our help that that Stay in our whatever our environment and our pressures are without a lot of our um, help. And again, I'm a big believer in, in hybrid vigor because it it's works for health. Um, also, couple things not to do. Again, don't deworm the entire group, um, and then um, not have a refugia program. There are some exceptions to that if you've got young cattle that are going to a feedlot. So, their resistant parasites are going to go to the feedlot with them and die. And then, that is a non permanent pasture. Then, uh, you clean that pasture up of any resistance. Then, you can get away with that. But otherwise, um, we're going to be careful about that. And then, again, avoid using the same pastures for young stock um, year after year. Um, Couple more things. Liver flukes are very detrimental. Not everybody's going to have them, but they're deadly when you combine them with other um, stressors. This, the snail habitat—you um, have to have a certain species of snail to transmit this. Um, it likes wet, low-lying um, areas, um, and you can see this picture there of the flukes in the in the hand, and they they just damage the liver um, severely. Um, how do we control those drainage to, to eliminate standing water and snails? Good luck with that. That's just really impractical. Um, we're going to treat for those cattle. Um, a fall treatment. Um, two products we have. Uh, Cure trim is currently unavailable. I'm hoping that that's going to come back on the market because I have a Plus and Valbazin. Are going to impact our internal parasites that we've just been talking about. So if we're using those products, we have to use it with with some refugia, um, and then we're going to treat in the spring um, as needed. If we've had a really bad problem in the fall or winter, uh, I'm going to treat then, and then I may come back um, and do a spring treatment a year or two just to kind of really knock them back. So the bottom line is this is a balancing act. We've got to balance short-term economics with long-term uh, sustainability, finding those cattle that, you know, survive without our help. We have been selecting cattle in the face of dewormers without a lot of parasite pressure for decades. And so now that those products are not working very well, how well can the cattle that we have been selecting handle that parasite pressure? I want to find those cows that handle it without my help. Yes, the diagnostics, the labor, the time using 2D warmers costs us more in the short term. But if we use a refugia program, we're not treating as many animals. If we can get away without treating adult cows, then that saves us a lot of pounds of treatment. Um, we've, you know, got to understand which products actually work, and then again, selection of cattle that don't need. Deworming in the long run, you know. Work with your veterinarian to help you with the diagnostics. Uh, you know, I'm always available to those veterinarians uh, to help with this also. And then, you really need to integrate. It's it's fun to talk about parasites kind of in a bubble like we're doing today, but really, parasite control has to be worked in with other herd health and management um, rec- recommendations. Um, and I love this. You know, the true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you don't expect to sit. So. You know we've got to pay attention to our sustainability with these products because we're not getting um, any more, and and none of us want to hear this message. It's much easier to just, you know, give a dewormer and continue to do what we're doing. But uh, we're we're in a pickle, and we need to try to to do better and and be more sustainable. So with that, um, that is it. If there are any questions, I'm happy to try to answer those. I'll, I want to thank everybody again for um,
0: tuning in. Wonderful, thank you. I don't see any questions right now. Um, I'm going to share my screen really quick and Vince, yep. if you don't mind watching the the Q&A box to see if anybody jumps on, but I want to share. Hopefully it's letting me. I'm getting a note. Oh. OK, I hope that y'all can see. Dr. Navar. can you see my PowerPoint for feedback?
1: Yes, I can. Sorry I was muted.
0: <laughs> oh, no, you're good. OK. Um, just a moment if y'all don't mind. We do ask for feedback on through a survey. Uh, it takes three to five minutes and it's over our beef brunch series. So the way to do this, if you open your camera on your phone and view the QR code on the right, when you view that into your camera, you'll see a little banner at the top and you can click on that to be able to go to our survey. And again, it's it's on the Beef French educational series in general. Um, We use that to help continuation of the series and learn how to improve the series as a whole. So, if you don't mind doing that if you're watching this on youtube later uh, there will be a link in the video description that you can click on to take that survey as well so we again just ask for your your time on that vince do you see any questions for dr navar
1: there are none at this time
0: okay if you all have questions um, for her you can send those to me. My contact information uh, will also be in the video description and I'll make sure that she gets those so that we can get those answered for you. Again, this uh, recording will be posted online within the next few days. It can be found on the LSU Ag Center Livestock YouTube channel. Uh, it can also be found on our Beef Brunch webpage, which is lsuagcenter.com beefbrunch and you can view it under the section of past webinars. Our next Beef Brunch will be at 1030 AM on Tuesday, October 13th. Uh, I will actually be your speaker for next month and I will be discussing the importance of a defined breeding season uh, as well as ways that you can implement very simple estrus synchronization protocols and the economic and labor benefits of those if you are using natural service. So still using your bull battery, um, but using extra synchronization and how that can improve your uh, your bottom line and your um, your profits. There is a flyer posted under the future webinar section on our beef brunch site and with that again if you have any questions regarding the series or regarding today's um, webinar you can contact me. My email is akedwards at agcenter.lsu.edu uh, again Doctor Navarre, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you Vince for helping me out and I hope everyone has a great day.